We're going to dig into God's Word as well. And, and an important passage in Luke is Jesus begins to deal with decisions people make about His ministry. We've been on the road to Jerusalem. And the, remember, the first third of the book was all around ministry in Galilee and the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And now we're on the journey to Jerusalem, the journey to the cross, really, as Jesus is now heading very intentionally, and he's stepped up his, the, the specificity of his teaching that the cross is coming, that his death is coming, that his resurrection is coming. But that leaves people needing to make a decision. Because as, encounter, as they encounter the truth of who Jesus is, they have to make a decision about who they believe Jesus is. I love a story. An old successful businessman was once talking to, to a young man that he was mentoring. And um, this young man was trying to figure out how to be a successful businessman and how to go about business. And, and one day the young mentee said, what, what's the secret of success? And the old man said, I can give it to you in two words. Right decisions. Makes sense. But the young man, trying to follow up and figure that out, said, but, but how do you go about making right decisions, asked the young man. Experience, came the reply. But, but how does one gain experience? Wrong decisions, replied the man. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that in business. I remember in business making a lot of wrong decisions, and you learn from those, and you make better decisions. And in parenting, unfortunately, sometimes we make wrong decisions. We're like, oh, that didn't work. My, my child's like bouncing off the walls now. And, um, and so we learn from those and we make right decisions. But when it comes to eternal decisions, do we really want to start with wrong decisions? Do we really want to start by making a wrong decision about something that could affect our eternal destiny, whether we have eternal life with Jesus Christ or whether we have eternal punishment in hell? These are not decisions that we get a do-over on. You know, our family growing up, the kids had do-overs sometimes, depending on the nature of the offense. And, and so many times as a teaching tool, we'd say, okay, and, and we'd, we'd give the appropriate discipline, but then we'd do a do-over and step them through how this could have been, been made right, trying to take a wrong decision and help them make a right decision. But when it comes to whether we believe in Jesus Christ, whether we repent and follow him, there are no do-overs. This is a decision that affects us the rest of our lives. So how do we learn from, from wrong decisions in that case? And what we're going to find in our text today is Jesus is going to be just very clear about other people's wrong decisions and other people's opinions about who he is and, and their decisions of whether or not to accept the work of Christ and whether or not to repent and accept the kingdom of God coming. And we can learn from them. Now today... I know, I know many things keep people from making a commitment to Jesus. You hear it on the news all the time. We're hearing more and more in opposition to Christianity and in opposition to the message of the gospel. We heard this week one of our local politicians talking about one of the new bills in California say, well, the church just needs to evolve with the times. They just need to grow and, and adapt to the times. And I'm not even going to get into all the logical inconsistencies with that of truth and absolute truth and how can you say that. I mean, there's all kinds of issues with that. But we're seeing an opposition to the church and to Jesus Christ. And so there are all kinds of reasons why people might reject Christ. Today, we're just going to look at a couple that, that Jesus brings up. But as we come to the text today, I know many of you have already made your decision to follow Christ. And I praise God for that. But, but don't check out on this text. Don't say, oh good, we have a text for non-believers. I get a half hour nap. 
or 40 or 50 minutes, whatever, however long we go. But that you gave me enough time, so um, we're, we're just going to go. There's three ways I want you to look at this text and, and just to preface it. The first is that if you're a believer, use this as a text to, to, to observe Jesus' example of how he goes after some of the objections. And he mercifully and lovingly and boldly confronts the objections to who he is. And his heart is to draw people to himself. And his heart is to draw people into the gospel. And as believers, we need to see that and have that same heart. The second way I want to look at it is in some points today, and Jesus is going to take a lot of different thoughts and examples and bring them together. But the second thing is I want to challenge us as every one of us here, but especially those that are believers here, to say, have I let Christ fill every part of my heart? Have I let Christ fill every part of my life? Or are some of these objections the same one I use to not give him that area of my life? Or to not, not deal with that sin? Or to say, you know, I'm only really going to do ministry or serve three, three days out of the week because that's really special for God that he gets me for three days. Or are we going to give our whole hearts to God? And the last way to look at this, I know some of you today may not have made a decision to follow Christ. And so I urge you to listen to the words of Christ today and evaluate, is this true or not? And that is the decision that will affect your eternity, all of eternity. Is this true or not? And see if what Jesus is saying makes sense. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, as we're blazing our way through the Gospel of Luke, we will get done sometime. (laughs) You were looking for a a certain time. Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one right under the seats right around you. Take one of those, and, and if you don't have one at home, take that home with you as our gift to you. But I want you to see the words of Christ from the Bible and that I'm not just making these things up. But Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. And Jesus is going to begin to answer these these objections. The first point in your notes is people found reasons to reject Jesus even after seeing proof of who he is. People found reasons to reject Jesus even after seeing proof of who he is. And as we work through the text today, the the nature of our points, we're just going to summarize each paragraph and each section and and allow Jesus' arguments to, to speak to us. But we start in verse 14 with, with the story, and, and it's, it's a one-verse story of the miracle because the rest of the text sort of expands on it. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. That's it. That's the whole miracle. We don't get this whole elaborate story. We don't get the special effects. A man has a demon. He can't speak. Jesus walks up to the demon, casts it out, which proves his power, proves his authority, The man speaks, so everyone knows this was a true miracle. It wasn't fake. It wasn't TV televangelists or whatever. This was a true miracle. And the people marveled. The people were amazed. And that's the setting for the objections. Because you look at something like that, and I've heard so many times, well, if we were living with Jesus and saw the miracles, we'd believe. Well, let's see if that's true. But let's see if this turned the, the people around. Because this isn't the first demon Jesus cast. He cast out demons all over the place. He was showing his power over evil in the domain of Satan. This is an amazing miracle of authority and power that we shouldn't miss that just because we're familiar that Jesus does this. And so in verse 15, we get the responses. 
And, and we see two, two separate responses in 15 and 16. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him keep seeking from him a sign from heaven. See, it wasn't enough that people marveled and were impressed. They didn't become followers of Jesus. And we have two different attempts to discredit Jesus, two different attempts to rationalize what he did so that way they wouldn't have to deal with the claims that he made. And this is what we do, right? when, When we don't believe in Jesus Christ or even if we don't want to do something the Word says, we rationalize it away and we attribute it to other things. And and that's what they're doing in in two different ways. The first is just open opposition. If you notice in, in verse 15, it says, some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul. That's not a name we use every day, I know. But that's a name that, that referred to the Canaanite deity Baal and that his, his holy dwelling or his high place. And this, this term for Baal had come to represent Satan, and which is why you see in the text the prince of demons. And so basically people are saying, oh, Jesus can't be God. In fact, he is casting out demons by the power of Satan. And they're twisting the whole thing. And they take the, the very proof of his deity and, and godhood, and they attribute it to evil, to Satan himself. Now, now, that does a couple things. Number one, it denies the deity of Christ, and it denies that he's the Messiah, which is very convenient if you're trying to get away from his claims. But the other thing it does is it denies his power because now it's saying he has to have Satan's help to do this. He can't do this on his own. He has to have Satan's help. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And so this is open opposition to to Jesus and his work. The second is is a little bit different and a little bit more insidious in, in some ways, a little bit more of what we do, while others detest him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. A sign from heaven. And while the first is open opposition, I would call this being neutral about Jesus. Uh, we'll see. If I could just get a little bit more proof, if I could have mathematical certainty of who Jesus is, you know, if I could get a sign from heaven, and I could imagine Jesus saying, you just had one. The guy's talking. He wasn't talking before. That was a demon that was doing that. I cast it. Do you need another sign? And that's, that, that's staggering for any of us to say, if I was just there, if I had just seen what Jesus did, I would have believed. No, no, no. The heart is desperately wicked. And without the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, we would make the same excuses. And we'd, we'd be opposing in the same way. Both of these prevent a commitment to Jesus. One, outright opposition. We can get angry about the others just as much opposition, but we'll call it neutrality. We see both of these today. We see opposition in our culture, which we mentioned, but we also see a, a whole lot of neutrality toward Jesus. Well, you can believe what you want to believe. Everyone should get to, to believe what they want to believe. Have you seen the coexist bumper stickers that I just want to go and rip off people's car, but I guess that wouldn't be proper. Um, and, and, and it's saying all these religions are good, and, and if we just could coexist, and you believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. And it's sitting on the fence about who Jesus is. I need overwhelming evidence. And so we see both of these. And, and so in the, in the following verses, Jesus is going to deal with both of these and sometimes one, sometimes the other, and it's sort of interwoven. And so we'll just follow through what Jesus has to say. 
And so point number two, Jesus' proof that His work is from God requires a for or against choice with no middle ground. I know, sort of a long sentence. Jesus' proof that His work is from God requires a for or against choice with no middle ground. And you see Him actually dealing with both arguments there, one of direct opposition and, and power, and then we're also going to see Him say there's no middle ground. You're either for me or against me. And we start in, in verse 17. And he, he deals with the Beelzebul argument first. It says, but he, knowing their thoughts... By the way, that's another sign. That's a sign of his deity. He's reading their mind. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And, and here he's going to come up with two major arguments why the whole Beelzebul thing is silly. It, it's ridiculous. His first argument is their assertion was illogical. It doesn't make sense. How foolish would it be for Satan to fight itself, himself? And so he says, every kingdom divided against himself is laid waste. A divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul? And that's the nature of his first argument. He's saying, really? Does it even make sense that Satan, who is trying to rule and trying to destroy, begins to fight his people that are trying to rule and trying to destroy? And this is like taking a squad and sending them out to battle and saying, while you're in the trenches on the front line and the enemy starts to fire at you, we'd like you to fight each other first. No, no, this is ridiculous. And Jesus is pointing it out. He's saying this is, this is just wrong. His whole ministry was about casting out demons, about countering the effect of the, the dark realm here, about the incursion of the kingdom of God into what Satan thinks was his kingdom. And he says, no, no. Civil war isn't the way you win a battle against an outside army. It just doesn't make sense. The people would have understood this. If you remember Israel's background with Israel and Judah... And the divided kingdom, they knew what it was like to fight each other and be divided and then have one taken over by Assyria and the other taken over by Babylon. It didn't work and, and this should have resonated with their history. Now you think about sports teams. I know we have some basketball fans and I just have to say Cleveland, right? And the, the implosion that happened with that team because there was so much infighting this year. It was devastating. We know that of any sports team. And we could go on and on and on. We can go to political parties and the implosion of fighting within our or within political parties and what that does to allow the other side to win. But Jesus is saying this doesn't make sense. If I'm really working for Satan, why am I defeating Satan? And then he goes on in verse 19 to, to the next argument. And while that one was the, uh, an argument from logic, this, was a, this one is an argument of self-incrimination. And he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons cast them out? And there's some debate of what that can mean. Some have said your sons refers to Jesus' disciples. But, but really it looks like he's talking about Jewish um, leaders or, or Jewish Pharisees that are some were casting out demons in the name of Yahweh. And Jesus just says, aren't you indicting yourself? If you say that I'm casting out demons by Satan, who are your people casting them out by? 
It's just a simple argument, but it's one that makes sense to them. By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Their actions, that they're able to do this, will judge you and your, your argument here. And then he goes into the, the conclusion of this and, and the, the direction this goes. In verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, or it has arrived. Let me read that verse again. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And, and the wording there requires a decision. The kingdom of God is here. And, and again, they would have understood. We're like, oh, finger of God. I, it makes sense. And we think of maybe some painting where God's doing this or whatever. But finger of God had meaning in the Old Testament. I don't, just, just Some of you that have been to Wildwood, you know where I'm about to go, right? Because what do you do when you say the Shema? You hold, you hold your pinky up, right? And it's a reference to the finger of God. And this goes back to the plagues and the ten plagues. And the first couple of plagues, the Egyptian magicians were able to copy somehow with, with their arts or whatever. But the plague of the gnats came and the, the magicians went to Pharaoh and said, we can't do this one. This is by the finger of God. And so in is the history of Israel, the finger of God represented his power. And when we hold up the pinky, we say, if, if God could do the ten plagues and free Israel with just his finger, what happens if he brings the, the whole weight of his power to a situation? And so Jesus is saying, this is by the finger of God. Another reference in the Old Testament, and this is just fun stuff that I think helps us understand what they would have understood, because this is two Pharisees, students of the law. Do you remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and the tablets were written? The Old Testament specifically says they were written by the finger of God. By the finger of God. And so Jesus is tying into their history and he's saying, you know, if it is by the finger of God I cast out demons, and he's already proven it can't be from Satan, and that it has to be someone that is opposed to Satan, if it's the finger of God, and it is, I've just proven it, then the kingdom of God is here and you've got to deal with the ramifications of that. Do you see what Jesus is doing? And this is, this is just powerful arguments showing that he's countering this attempt to discredit him. And any attempt to discredit the work of Jesus will leave you on the wrong side of the finger of God. And that's not a place you want to be. He goes on in 21 and 22 to to give a further illustration concluding this and saying where this, this thought has to lead. In verse 21, he says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, and think a warrior or a soldier that has now taken his palace and put security guards in place, gates, maybe some cameras and whatever, but he is guarding his place well. And so it says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And the imagery here is the strong man is Satan in this case. And Satan thinks he has a a hold on this world. And sometimes, quite frankly, it looks like he does. But he thinks he has a foothold here and, and that this is his domain. But when the kingdom of God shows up in verse 22... When one who is stronger attacks him, overcomes him, takes away his armor in which he trusted, and divides his spoil. 
the picture there is of complete victory. Complete victory. And Jesus here is showing the power of God over evil and over Satan. And think back to some of the stories we've already studied in Luke, where you have demons coming up and and bowing before Jesus and begging to go into pigs. And and you see this this illustration of their bowing to Jesus' power. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, not only is my power not from Satan, because that's just stupid, because my power is from God. And my power is such that who, who you think the strong man Satan is, I can overcome like that and completely destroy to where I'm dividing his spoils into my kingdom. God's kingdom wins. There's no other way to say that. His kingdom wins, and it is a, a, a resounding win. It is an ultimate defeat. It's not even close. And that alone should bring us cause to make decisions in a different way. In a different way. Sometimes, and you've heard me talk about, sometimes we have too great a view of Satan, and sometimes we have too little a view of Satan. And we're going to get both in this passage. In this case, it's a warning against having too, too great of a view of Satan. He cannot defeat the one living in you if you're a follower of Christ. He can't, period. God is stronger. I love what Thomas Brooks, a Puritan preacher, wrote um, to believers. Satan has only a persuading slight, not an enforcing might. He may tempt us, but without ourselves, he cannot conquer us. He may entice us, but without ourselves, he cannot hurt us. Our hearts carry the greatest stroke in every sin. Satan can never undo a man without himself, but a man may easily undo himself without Satan. And he's speaking of, once we're believers and of the power of God in us, we sin because it's our choice, not because we have to. We sin because we aren't tapping into the Holy Spirit and dwelling us, wanting to to help and assist with every temptation. The kingdom of God is stronger in a way that is completely and ultimately a victory. And so Jesus concludes this paragraph with verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, he's ending the argument against the Beelzebul opposition and and this this opposition to Christ, but he brings in here the neutrality idea that, oh, I can be neutral about Jesus. I don't have to make a decision now. I have time to do that later. He says, no, no, no. There's only two sides. You're not in between. Whoever Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It is impossible to be neutral in this decision. It's impossible to be Switzerland. You're going to get shot up from both sides. Interesting terminology at the end of the verse, though, that I want the believers here to, to catch. Whoever is not with me is against me. Okay, I've accepted Christ. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Think about that phrase, because what Jesus is saying is if we aren't actively involved with him in his work and in his mission, we are opposed to his mission and scattering. So there's only two choices when it comes to our eternal destiny, but there's only two choices with our time and mission as well. And so if there's an area of my life that I am not actively gathering and trying to to be on mission for Christ, that I have just sort of relegated to, well, my Christianity doesn't have to touch this area. I'm just going through life. If there's an area like that in my life, I'm not only not 
participating with Jesus in his mission, I am opposing it by scattering. I am harming the mission of God. There is nothing more harmful than a Christian who says they're a Christian that doesn't live like Christ in every area of their life. That is so harmful to a witness and a testimony. And so that verse we should, we should highlight and say, I need to make sure I'm gathering with Jesus every moment of the day. That my job is focused on how I can be used for the kingdom of God. That my marriage is, that my, where I live is, and that everything I do is. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus then goes on in verses 24 through 26 to, to the next argument and the next um, area that he's going to dive into. And in your notes, I have neutrality toward Christ actually opens the door for Satan. And he begins to deal with this whole aspect of I can be neutral. I don't have to pick sides. Maybe if I just got a sign. Maybe if I just got more information. He's going to deal with that in a couple of sections coming up. But the first here is neutrality toward Christ actually opens the door for Satan. And in, in really a chilling three verses that we should take notice of. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And waterless places, if you think of all the pictures of the desert and the wilderness with John the Baptist that we put up, that's what this is referring to. And, and in Jewish thought, those waterless places, that wilderness was where the demons resided. That was, that was where the, the spiritual battles happened. That's why you see John the Baptist battling there and Jesus being tempted there. But, but it says, so Jesus is painting this picture. The unclean spirit has gone out of a person. It passes through the waterless places seeking rest and it finds none. And who wants to live in the wilderness? It says, I'll return home to the house. Actually, it says, I'll return home to my house from which I came. And he's talking about the body, the life of the person he was cast out of. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Because now that the person doesn't have the demon and they don't have the influence of Satan on their lives, they've sort of spruced up their life. They're a good person now. And they have good morals and they've made everything all shiny without Christ. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And so then, speaking of the unclean spirit, the demon, then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. They make a home there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first because now there's eight instead of one. And and Jesus is talking about the dangers of neutrality toward Christ. And, and, And if you're here and you're on the fence about who Jesus is, man, let's deal with that now. Talk to me afterwards. I'll spend whatever time you need to talk about who Jesus is. Any of the pastors or elders, any of the people here will. But we've got to deal with this and settle this question because to, to not settle it, to be neutral toward Christ, is to open the door for Satan and his influence in your life. For a non-believer, it's to open the door for possession or influence or control by Satan. But even for believers, areas we haven't given over to God are areas that we open the door for Satan to influence. For Satan to influence. See, only filling our house with Jesus keeps us from the strong man. In this case, think of this as all the the ways that we try to save ourselves and all the moral trappings to be good people. And there are a lot of good people in this world that are going to end up in hell. 
because they haven't repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ and invited him into their life. That invitation of Jesus to come and fill our lives is the only way to keep Satan and his influence out. The only way. And I think of, as, as, I, as I listen to different surveys and look at different surveys of spirituality and Christianity in America, one of the things that everyone's talking about is the rise of the nuns. I don't know if you've heard of that. The nuns are those people that don't declare for any religion. They, they won't say they're Christian. They won't say they're, they're um, Buddhist. They won't say they're Muslim. But they won't declare for anyone because they're just sort of leaving the door open. And that is the largest category that's growing in America right now, especially among millennials, is the nuns. That way I don't have to make a decision. I hedge my bets and keep the doors open to find out which one's right. The problem is that's neutrality. That is leaving the door open directly for Satan and denying the claims of Christ. There's just no way around it. Oswald Chambers, just a wonderful devotional writer, said this. Neutrality in religion is always cowardice. God turns the cowardice of a desired neutrality into terror. Let me repeat that. Neutrality in religion is always cowardice. God turns the cowardice of a desired neutrality into terror. You know, I, I love physical examples of things. And so I brought something today. And, and I just love things. Picture this as your life and your heart, Okay. And, and you can see through it, sort of square, looks sort of like a house. And the demon, oh, caught it. That really bounces. <laughs> the unclean spirit's inside. And it's rattling around and affecting things. And if I had put some mud on that ball, you know, some, some dirt, it would be spreading dirt all over. Okay, that's the picture at the beginning of this story. And, and, and then someone comes along and... and dispels the demon, casts the demon out. And then, eh, pretty nice, not rattling around anymore. Maybe we do some cleaning and make the house all nice, right? And this is what it means to live a good life, to try to live a good life and think you're going to heaven by living a good life or going to church enough or doing X, whatever X is. But then it says what you've really done is you've left the door open for a whole number to come back in and for greater influence by evil and by Satan. He says, Jesus is warning about this. See, the answer, though, isn't just to clean the outside or clean the walls. The answer is you've got to fill the house with something else. And so if you take walking with Jesus, following him, which he's promised to give us the Holy Spirit that will indwell us, then that fills our lives and fills our hearts. And now if you take the influence of evil, it, it, it won't go down in. And you can try to get it down in. Sorry for those that um, clean. <laughs> and it just, it won't go in. Why? Because something is already filling that. And, and this is a challenge to say, how much of my life is filled by the Holy Spirit? How much of my life have I given to him or have I allowed sec secularism to, to creep in or worldliness to creep in? Whether it be with all kinds of different choices or entertainment choices or, or areas where I just don't talk about God, the apathy choice, which is really the neutrality choice that doesn't work. And so, so many times we just keep part of our lives. 
Sorry, sorry. You never know if it's going to run down the side or... We'll clean that up later. We keep part of our lives, but the unfortunate thing about only giving part of our lives to God is we've still left room for Satan's influence. This is what Jesus is talking about. Make sense? Make sense? Our challenge as believers is to say, have I given Christ every part of my life? Not just with a choice to follow him, but with actions and obedience that follow him. And that's where the next um, statement's going to come. And, and point number four, verses 27 and 28, just build on this. I think it's an example of this, but I made it a separate point. Liking Jesus or being impressed with him isn't enough. Being for Christ means hearing and obeying. Liking Jesus or being impressed with him isn't enough. Liking to come to church and saying, oh, the music's really good, or the preacher does weird things on stage, whatever it is, that's not enough. The only thing that's enough is, is, is hearing God's word and obeying God's word, hearing and doing. That's how we fill the house. In verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed to the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. It's talking about your mom must be, she is blessed because you are so wonderful. She is probably proud of you, excited about what you're doing. And this woman is overwhelmed. And all of that's probably true. And in fact, Jesus, when he says, but he said, the wording is there is, there is basically yes, but. Yes, but that's not enough. That's not the full picture. And Jesus said, yes, but blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And Jesus said, it's not just about liking Jesus. It's not just about being impressed. What he's looking for and the only way that we fill the, the, the house of our hearts is by listening to God's word and obeying it in every part of our lives. Every part of our lives. See, when we, when we leave part of our house empty, we leave a vacancy sign. And the only way for a no vacancy sign is to have that filled with the kingdom of God. And filled where, where every, every thought I have, every decision I make, my priority in life is the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. It's a radical way to live. But it's the way that Jesus and God have designed to protect us. We go on then to the next section, 29 through 32. And point number five is not choosing is choosing. And he deals real specifically here with the request for the sign. Not choosing is choosing. Neutrality or indifference to Christ is a choice to reject him. And and we've, we've been talking about this, but he's just real specific here now. He gets down to it in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, so more and more people are coming in, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." And he deals with this request, if I just had proof. And basically he's saying, you will have proof enough. You have proof enough. And there's all kinds of debate about what the sign of Jonah is. It might be just a preaching of the gospel to repentance. And that's what Jesus was doing. I I, I think Matthew is correct when he says that it actually refers to Jonah being three days in the belly of the fish and then coming back. And so Jesus will be three days in the belly of the ground and then resurrected to life. I think that's the sign. And if there's any sign that proves Jesus is who he is, it's the resurrection. 
He's alive now. He's not still dead. That doesn't always happen. And, and so he's, Jesus is saying, no, you had a sign with Jonah and he comes out of the fish and, and he's, he's been three days in there. Now, whether he was dead or not is, is, is an interesting debate, but the people thinks he's dead. He's, he's puked up on the shore and he's, he has the remnants of stomach acid for three days all over him. He can't look his best. And, and he comes in and he's preaching repentance and that becomes a sign to the people. And, and we know that Nineveh, an Assyrian town, just wholesale turns to Christ. They repent and turn to Christ. And Jesus is saying, you're going to get the same sign from me. And he actually uses the future tense, which is why I think he's speaking of the resurrection. So will the Son of Man be to this generation? And that same sign is what we have. We know through God's word that he rose from the dead on the third day. And if, if you want to go back to several Easter's, we've talked about proofs of the resurrection and how you just can't get around that the resurrection was real. And it was true. And it demands a choice. It demands us to get off the fence about who Jesus is. I would rather people either oppose Jesus or say they're wholeheartedly for him than say, oh, I'm waiting, keeping my options open. And so we have a sign. See, if the resurrection happened, we must believe. Or we're wasting our time here. We're wasting our time. And he gives these, these two examples here, in, starting at 31, that just had to be biting for the people that are here because both of these examples are Gentile examples. And you've heard us talk about the culture and what Jews thought of Gentiles. In 31, the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so he brings up the queen of Sheba and says she, she had a whole delegation and at great cost and at great time she came to hear the wisdom of God from Solomon. But he's saying, I've just proven to you with, with casting this demon out and everything I've been doing that I'm greater than Solomon and you're not going to listen to me? So that's one that would have stung a little bit. And then 32, he brings Jonah back up. And Nineveh again is a, a pagan, pagan Gentile town. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment, rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so he's saying, you've got your sign. I've proven that I'm greater than Solomon. I've proven that I'm greater than Jonah. I've proven I'm the Messiah. And you're still like, let's wait and see. You never know. If I just had a little more proof. And he's exposing it as the rationalization that it is, the excuse that it is. Because they've had plenty of proof. They've had the signs that they were looking for. And they still reject it. Because in the end, if our heart wants to reject Jesus, it will reject Jesus. And through the Holy Spirit and the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we can turn to Jesus and we can overcome these things. Neutrality or indifference to Christ is a choice to reject Him. We have to get off the fence. And I challenge anyone here today, if, if, if you're still unsure... Let's get off the fence. Let's do this. Let's deal with this. Because Jesus, out of his love, came 
and died on the cross in your place to pay for your sins. And he says, if you just follow me, that life can be yours. The last four verses, 33 through 36, really, I think, are summarizing. There's all kinds of debate. Well, how do these tie in? I think they're summarizing everything. He brings in some new illustrations. But the summary here is the light of the gospel must enter, infuse, and fill the house of our lives to make a difference. So I think he's saying the same thing as this illustration. He's just doing it with with light instead of an empty house. And so we read, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar and under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now Jesus has used light in several different ways. We know sometimes he uses light to refer to his followers. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. But in this case, the light, and we're going to see from the rest of the passage, the light here is the message of Christ. It's Christ. It's, it's the gospel. And he says, if this news of the gospel, it's got to be seen. And in this first verse, light must be seen. The gospel must be proclaimed. Because this is what stands in opposition to the darkness. Light is what is more powerful than darkness. We turn on a light switch, right? When we leave the house, we don't turn on a dark switch. We turn off the light switch. And that's an important distinction. The gospel is the light that overcomes darkness. Darkness can never overcome light. And so no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or a crypt, some translations say, or under a basket. That's silly. He's using an argument from logic again. But you put it on a stand so that all those that enter in may see the light. Those of you that have been to Living Nativity, think of those little lamps because those are are actually a really good replica of the size they had. And they would put one of those lamps on a lampstand in the middle of their their one-room house. And that would be enough light for their house. But they had to have it out there where everyone could see. The gospel needs to be out there for everyone to see, because it is light and it is powerful. The message is clear. But then he goes on to talk about this illustration of, okay, how has it infiltrated your life? How has it filled your life? Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. And when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. And he's saying, how does light get into the person? And he's using a physical example here, but he's really talking about the spiritual. And the healthy eye is one that that is spiritually discerning, that can make spiritually good decisions, decisions that are following Christ. And, And when your eye is bad, it's speaking of those where it's spiritually unhealthy. It's full of darkness. And he's saying what, what we are allowing into ourselves, what we are seeing, and, and whether we are focused on the light, that affects our whole body. When your eye is healthy, when you're taking in those things that are light, your whole body's full of light. And you, you fill the house. But when your eye is unhealthy, when you've allowed areas of darkness to come in, your whole body is full of darkness. It's one or the other. It's not a middle ground. And he goes on, Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. And that's a challenge for believers and unbelievers. Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Are there ways that we're just pretending at Christianity? Are there ways we're just playing Christianity and thinking it's light? Or are we sold out to God's word and his way and with a love for Jesus that replaces all else? Because if we're not sold out for that, it's really just darkness. It's one or the other. And he finishes with 36. 
If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And it's this idea of being so filled with light that it permeates every corner. It infiltrates every corner. And so just in your mind for a moment, think how much of my life is infused with the light? How much of my life? If, if someone was to watch every hour of every day, maybe we'll skip the sleeping part, but every hour of every day, could they tell I was a believer every hour of every day? And I'm not talking we've got to wear Christian shirts to work under our ties or, or we have to have bumper stickers all over the back of my car. I'm talking character and how we go about life and how we live life. Is that motivated by a love for God and a love for others? Is that motivated by being on mission for the kingdom? And you see all these themes that we've been talking about through Luke are coming together here. Is there times that people couldn't tell that we're different? I challenge you, think through your week. Are there any areas that we haven't given over completely to God? We all have them. So this isn't a chance to point fingers and say, I know who he's talking to in the congregation. Yeah, all of us. We all have them. But are we going to be seeking those out and say, I am going to let the light of the kingdom, the light of the gospel, influence this part of my life. Influence the person I'm angry about. Influence my attitude towards someone that annoys me. Influence my attitude tomorrow morning to a boss that I despise. Influence my attitude in the home when people are arguing and complaining and bickering, will I bring light to bear on every part of those things? Some teachings from Jesus about making decisions. Making decisions for Him. Eternal decisions. And getting past some of the excuses. Let's make sure we are wholeheartedly living for Christ. And so we we pour out our lives in praise, Lord. And I pray that this week you would reveal if there's areas of our lives that aren't poured out in praise to you. If there's areas we've held back and, and that we haven't given completely to you, Lord. Lord, I also pray if anyone here hasn't made a decision to follow you, that you would take away any reasons to not follow you. That you would take away any justifications, any excuses, and show that you are God that the sign of Your resurrection, the sign of Your teaching and what You've done, Lord, would show that You are God and You are worth following. You are the only real option. Lord, we give You our lives. We give You our praise. In Jesus' name.